You're listening to an audio message from The Well, a gospel-centered church family in Hastings, Nebraska that exists to grow disciples and glorify God. For more information, please visit www.thewellhastings.com. This is the second part of a series that we're in called Within a Yard of Hell. Um, May sound like a strange um, series name. Um, But many of you have been with us long enough, or if you've known me, our mission statement for our church is that we want to run a rescue mission within a yard of hell. That's been our mission statement for almost 10 years, and we thought that as we neared the 10-year-old mark as a church family, it would be good to go back to some of the core passages um, and core statements that have made up who we are. And so... um, The first week, a couple of weeks ago, we focused on what it means to be commissioned uh, within a yard of hell. We talked about some of the great commission passages, and we talked about the promise that Jesus makes that when he builds his church, the gates of hell will not prevail. And so we spent some time there. And this week, we are going to look specifically at John chapter 4, and it's a story of the woman at the well. It's a powerful story, um, in my estimation, and over the course of about 10 years now, I think we've been in this text a couple of times. I remember the very first time early on, I see Andrew shaking his head. Um, we remember that there was a gathering in my backyard that lasted about three hours as we studied this passage in a circle in lawn chairs. That was one of the very first times as a church family that I remember us looking through it. I think we all took naps in the yard afterwards. Nobody fell off a wall, such as when, what happened when Paul preached all night long, and I've often joked that I could probably do that, and I'm just not sure that I could raise somebody from the dead afterwards. And so, we, I don't preach all night long. John chapter 4. Should we dive in? I'm not going to make you guys stand, because it's a, it's a pretty long passage, but if you would follow along with me. Uh, if you don't have your Bible with you, it'll also be on the screens in front of you. Here's God's word to us, beginning in verse 1 of John chapter 4. Now, when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. And Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. And Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. 
And Jesus said to her, Go, call your husband and come here. And the woman answered him, I have no husband. And Jesus said to her, You're right in saying I have no husband. For you've had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. And Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Just then, his disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking with a woman, but no one said, what do you seek? Or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, Come, see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? And they went out of the town and were coming to him. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples said to one another, Has anyone brought him something to eat? And Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Do you not say there are yet four months, then comes the harvest? Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life, so that sower and reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you did not labor. Others have labored and you have entered into their labor. Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. And so when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, It is no longer because of what you said that we believe. For we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. This is the word of God for the people of God this morning. Would you join me in prayer? Father, we thank you for your word. God, thank you so much for this story of the woman at the well. And God, I pray this morning that you would <coughs> help us to um, live in this story, to maybe see ourselves in this story. to encounter um, our crucified, risen, and returning Savior in the same way that the woman at the well encountered Jesus. Help us to encounter you and to hear from you. I'm convinced this morning that nobody needs to necessarily hear a word from me. Each of us needs to hear a word from you. So I pray that you would do that. trust you to do that. In Jesus' name, amen. Nearly uh, <clears throat> 10 years ago, as I said a little bit ago, uh, there was a small group of us 
and probably about 10 or 15 of us, if I remember right, um, and we were preparing to vote on what the name of our church would be. And I think this was the backyard conversation that I referenced earlier. Um, we had uh, chosen three different names for our little group to uh, choose between. One was uh, Cross Point Church. It had a catchy thought to it. There were some pretty cool logos we were able to come up with. Um, far too many Cross Point churches in, uh, in, in the world, I think. Um, I don't know if you can have too many, but there were too many for us. No Cross Point churches here, but Cross Point Church was on the list. Another one was Coram Deo. We thought that kind of sounded catchy because it was Latin. I think, um, but there's a Quorumdale Church in Omaha, and so we kind of wondered if we really ought to go there, and then the other one was, was the well. Many of us identified well with the well um, and the story uh, from Scripture, and as we cast our little ballots, our little notes in the backyard, the, the vote was unanimous, um, and on that day we became the well within a yard of hell. That's uh, a catchy um, way of saying it. That was the day, nearly 10 years ago. Um, it's based on this story. Um, the story of Jesus' conversation with the woman at the well um, is really, it's really a story about um, Jesus' intentional and passionate pursuit um, of those who have been sidelined and ostracized or outcast in this world. Um, and really, if you read the Gospel of John, you would see that all throughout the Gospel of John, Jesus is continually proving that He absolutely, without condition, loves the unlovable in this world. Um, the reality about Jesus, and when you read any of the Gospels, but especially when you read the Gospel of John, is you, you encounter a Jesus who um, sees us, he sees everything about us. He sees us in our darkest, and our, our filthiest, our most shame-filled moments. He sees us. He's not afraid of that. He doesn't just see us. He pursues us. And He offers Himself to us in the midst of our darkness, in the midst of our filth, in the midst of our shame, in the midst of our guilt. He offers Himself in His perfection in His perfect love, offers Himself to us. He doesn't just offer to be with us, which is something I think is attractive, that a perfect God would want to be with us. But He doesn't just offer to be with us. He actually offers to satisfy every desire, every longing, every need that we will ever have, so long as we listen to Him, Submit to Him, believe in Him, surrender to Him, and then live in obedience to Him. To think about this story again. Think about how Jesus makes this visit to the well in Samaria. See, when Jesus goes to the well in Samaria, right, it's almost, when you read the text, it almost seems like uh, He has no choice but to travel through that area. But the reality, if you go back to the original language, the reality of that original Greek language is that Jesus didn't just have to go through there. Jesus chose to travel through Samaria. Most religious people of that day would avoid Samaria. Samaria was not a place they would go. Why? 
The reason why is because Samaritan, Samaritans had long been held or regarded as very filthy, very rebellious, an, an un, unwanted crowd of people for various reasons. You can get into some of the uh, conversations about how there was some half-breed stuff going on that was part of the issue in the religious community of that day. The easiest way to say it for us in our context today is this, that religious people then were, were known to add extra days to their travel plans. They would literally catch a second flight if it meant that they would travel around Samaria rather than going through Samaria. And if, for any reason, they absolutely had to step into Samaria when they went out the other side, they would literally take their sandals off and shake the nasty Samaritan dust off their feet. No self-respecting, God-fearing, religious person would ever intentionally go to Samaria, much less a watering hole in the middle of the day in Samaria. Because the watering holes in Samaria in the middle of the day would attract... Some of the extra filthy, extra reject, extra outcast of society. The people that would visit the well, these watering holes at the middle, middle of the day, they would not be people of upright character. Uh, you wouldn't find these folks in a church gathering on a Sunday morning. You certainly would not be caught hanging out with them at their favorite drinking spot in the middle of the day or late at night for that matter. But this is exactly where Jesus intentionally goes. He goes to places that you would never expect him to go. Why? Why does Jesus go to places that most religious folks regard as too filthy, too tempting, too scandalous, or too far below the level of holiness that we have attained? Why does Jesus go to those places? The answer is the woman at the well. Jesus didn't go to the well because he was thirsty. Jesus went to the well because of the woman that would be there. Which leads me to the second part of our story when Jesus asks this woman for a drink of water at the well. Catch the picture. He's all alone. When every ministerial ethical, ethic book on the face of the planet, this is the, one of the biggest no-nos ever. You don't get caught at a drinking hole alone, especially with a woman. Jesus is alone at the well, middle of the day. I have a friend of mine who, part of a denomination that I... Um, grew up in spiritually, lost his job as minister because he had a burger at a joint like this for lunch, alone. Didn't even have a drink. All the self-respecting religious folks uh, would have already gotten their water early in the morning. That's the reality. The people who come to the well at midday are doing everything that they can to avoid rubbing shoulders with the higher class, you might say, or the religious class of society, or the, the holier-than-thou class of society. They come at midday. The people that come at midday are, 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 are avoiding 
that other crowd of people. The crowd that comes at midday when Jesus is there all alone, you would call vagabonds, you would call homeless people, you, you would maybe call them, maybe they're beggars, or they're, they're prostitutes, they're, they're drunks who just slept off a hangover, they're known addicts, they're, they're thieves. General outcasts, that's who would come to a watering hole such as this well at midday. <coughs> this is where Jesus is at. Jesus is sitting all alone at this local drinking spot waiting for this woman to show up. And when she does show up, what does Jesus do? He intentionally begins a conversation with her by asking for a drink of water. But you might intuitively know it's not about the drink of water. He starts there. It's easy to see from the rest of the conversation that this woman is, she's used to being propositioned. For a favor. She's used to that. You can see that in the text when you read the story. Used to being propositioned for favor. She's been giving herself to men who wanted something from her for years upon years upon years. This is the cycle she's living in. The shame and the guilt and the sin and the shame and the guilt and the sin and the shame and the guilt and the sin and the shame and the guilt and the sin. She's used to being propositioned for favors, but she's not used to being propositioned by a religious man. She makes no bones about that. She makes no bones about how shocked she is that Jesus is even talking to her, right? And Jesus, what does he do? He expertly turns the conversation away from this glass of water that he asks for and about how shocked she is that he would even ask her for that drink of water. He expertly turns it away from that right back to her need for an eternally satisfying drink of water. In essence, what Jesus begins to do on the front edge of the conversation is he begins to reveal that even though she's been used and abused by men and probably women for many years, even though she's been seeking fulfillment in those relationships, in the midst of her sinful patterns, even though she's been seeking all of that, the reality is that Jesus himself It's the tall, fresh drink of water that her soul has needed this entire time. Jesus is literally God's gift of eternal satisfaction through salvation. For every thirst, every desire, every longing that we will ever experience... And of course, I think if, you know, I I would be in the same place, I think, as this woman... In that moment, when Jesus begins to make these claims, I think she has a really hard time believing Him. The interesting thing is that the Gospel of John is all about believing. It's John's major word all throughout. It's the way that he constructs his Gospel so that you may believe that Jesus is the Savior and the King. This woman has a hard time believing Jesus' words. You ever find yourself in that place where Jesus begins to speak things to you, and you have a really hard time believing what you're saying to me right now. As you read his word, as you commune with him in prayer, as you hear from him through the community of other believers, you ever find yourself in that place where you go, I just, this one's hard, Lord. That's where she's at. She's having a hard time believing 
his words. And so what does she do? Well, she points out the reality that Jesus couldn't possibly give her anything of value to quench her thirst. She's still thinking in this physical felt need realm, right? Jesus couldn't possibly give her anything of value to quench her thirst. Why? Because Jesus doesn't even have a bucket, right? He ain't got no bucket to get the water up out of the well. The well is too deep for him to get water without a bucket. Furthermore, this makes a really good point, that the water that's in the well is not fresh water. It's not running water like you'd find in a stream. It's stagnant water. Where are you going to get this living water, this running water, Jesus? There's stagnant water in this well. You've got no bucket. There's no stream nearby. How are you going to get this living water, this running fresh water you're talking about? She even points to her ancestor, Jacob. Jacob was a famous man. He built this well for himself, for his livestock, for the community that sprang up around it. He was a famous man. How could Jesus sit here and talk about being able to provide fresh running water to her when even this famous man named Jacob couldn't do that? He had to build a well for stagnant water. Jesus' answer, by implication, is, I'm greater than Jacob. By implication, that's what Jesus is saying. I'm greater than Jacob because the refreshment that I offer to you is eternally satisfying. It's, it's almost as if when the woman hears Jesus speaking this way, she's very intrigued by what he's saying. And so I think she decides to see if Jesus is no different than every other man she's ever met who doesn't follow through on his promises. She's tired of unfulfilled promises. She's tired of fighting the traffic every day. She's tired of avoiding the looks and the stares and the snide little jokes. And she's worn out from her life of deception and sin and hiding from the crowd. And she's tired of being lied to. Hard work living this kind of a life. Anybody else here feel that? Hard work fighting those patterns of sin in your life. Or just flat out hiding from those patterns of sin in your life. Trying to ignore those patterns of sin in your life. Feeling the shame and the guilt and the weight. And trying to prove that you're better than you really are. It's hard work. Hard work for this woman. Giving herself away every night to deep patterns of sin. Laboring then throughout the day to avoid the judgmental looks and the nasty jokes about who she's had in her bedroom the night before. Hard work avoiding all of that by coming for this stagnant water in the heat of the day. And so I think she puts Jesus to the test. I think maybe she's had enough. She basically says, fine. Give me some of that fresh water. So I don't have to work so hard anymore. I won't have to come to this well in the middle of the day anymore in the heat. Give me some of that. See, so what this woman thinks, is she thinks that her greatest need is to lighten her load just a little bit so that she can continue to hide out in her sin. That's what she thinks her greatest need is. 
Jesus. Jesus knows better. And Jesus has her heart set directly in his sights. Because he knows that the woman's issue is not going to be resolved by helping her avoid the traffic. Her issue is not going to be resolved by helping her not to have to come to the well. What this woman actually has as far as an issue is a worship issue. So Jesus and this woman transition into a conversation about worship. It's almost comical, really, if you're tracking the conversation. You're just tracking like all the ups and the downs, right? Like Jesus' conversation with this woman, Jesus has a goal right from the start, and she's like squirrely all over the place. (coughs) It's comical to see Jesus's Again, like his passionate love for this woman, his patience and his kindness. It's such a picture for how patient and how kind Jesus is as he extends his love towards each of us. It's comical to witness (laughs) this woman as Jesus continues to pursue her in this conversation. She's doing everything that she can to avoid the real subject. She's doing everything she knows how to do to avoid the topic of her sin, right? Don't we do this? We have these mechanisms inside of us that move us to avoid the topic of our sin or our filth or our shame or our guilt, our failures. She's talking to Jesus and... She's trying to avoid this subject, and Jesus isn't letting things go. What does he do? He tells her, hey, uh, go grab your husband. Man, go grab your husband. Come on back. She says, I'm not married. And he goes, yeah, yeah, you're right. That's true. You're, You're being honest. You're being honest for the moment because the man that you're sleeping with isn't your husband, and you've had five husbands before this. Why are you talking about scared deer in the headlights look? Okay, I, I'm, I love doing this. Y'all have heard, if you've been here long, you've heard me make that list. The top five sins you committed in the last 24 hours, if you're honest with yourself, number one is the one you don't want to talk about. Jesus goes right there. Doesn't even ask her, hey, you want to you talk about some of your worst sin? No, he just, he just heads right there. What do you do when Jesus lovingly confronts your sin? when he uncovers the thing that you are the most ashamed of. It's the thing that causes you to lose sleep at night. Or it's the thing that is the hardest for you to share with another living soul. What do you do when Jesus lovingly confronts that? I think the woman does what most of us in our human flesh wind up doing she runs for cover she runs for cover just like adam and eve ran for cover once they realized they were naked and exposed and they created their own little garments to cover up that shame and she kind of does the same thing you see i think for her and i think for us oftentimes we feel the weight of this right like the sin is too filthy the shame is too overwhelming the the guilt is too burdensome My failures are too great. How could you ever actually love me? 
Jesus just so lovingly continues to engage in the conversation, but this woman, man, she runs for cover. And she runs for cover in a place that I think most of us, if I mean, you're sitting here in a church, even if this is your first time, I'm going to tell you, <laughs> you're already a half a step really close to becoming a religious person that loves to hide behind religious language. That's what she does. Well, she runs for cover under this disguise of a religious conversation. Right? At the end of the day, she figures Jesus must be a prophet because the dude just read her mail. <laughs> Everything she ever did paints it up on a big canvas. Maybe he can answer this ages-old religious conversation. This ages-old religious question that she's had. And everybody has this question, where should we attend worship at, right? Where's the best place for us to go worship God at? She's certain, as many of us at some point have been certain as well, where is the best place to go worship God? She's absolutely certain that if she could just find the right place to attend worship, then all of her problems are going to melt away. And that's not to say that we don't search for a good church family. Please don't hear me wrong. All good things Satan loves to take and twist. She asks that question, wants to hide out from the real conversation and have what she thinks is the real conversation, and Jesus just goes there with her. But he brings her right back to where he left off already. The reality for this woman, and I think for all of us, this is the thing that I think we can see in ourselves, is this this area of the worship dysfunction. You know why worship wars happen in churches? It's because people have worship issues. Like, we think it's about the music, we think it's about the timing, we think it's about the sound, we think it's about whether it's about old songs or new songs, we think it's about lighting or no lighting, it doesn't matter, we have arguments. And James is really clear that the reason there's arguments and dysfunction among you is because you want what you can't have, and when you ask for what you want, though you serve a God who would answer all your prayers, you ask for the wrong reasons. It points to a heart full of worship dysfunctions. At the end of the day, this woman was looking to all the men in her life to fulfill her every need. In reality, Jesus says that if you want to worship the Father, and the Father is looking for people to worship Him from the heart amidst the truth, the truth of their sin, and in, in light of the truth of the promise of salvation. It's, it's almost like in that moment, I think a light bulb uh, explodes inside this woman's heart. And I think at that point, she kind of candidly asks or kind of makes a statement with a question mark. Jesus, are you the Messiah that, that God has promised us throughout the ages? And Jesus answers her question just like that. And he says, yep, that's me. I'm the Savior who has come to ransom and to restore the outcast, the filthy, the shame-filled rejects throughout the world. That's a lot to take in, isn't it? It's almost as though I think maybe this woman needs a moment to process what she's just heard. Because just as that light bulb goes off inside of her heart, the disciples return. Talk about timing. Like, if I'm sitting there talking to a woman and I see these dudes, like, rolling down the road, I mean, they're probably being loud, probably joking and farting and spitting on each other. I mean, you know, just other men. Thank God we have mamas who love us. I'd probably be like, go away. 
this conversation is good. We just about got her there. She's going to say the sinner's prayer. You know, I, I think maybe she needed a moment to, to process what's going on. They returned to find Jesus talking with this woman. Not hard to tell. She's probably a woman who had a bad reputation. Again, I think it's almost funny, almost comical if you, if you put yourself in this conversation, right? Almost comical to witness Jesus' conversation then with the disciples because in his conversation with the disciples, he kind of talks to them about some things. I mean, some of the phrases he uses for you and I probably leave us like scratching our head like, what's going on here? I don't know what he's even talking about. How does this even fit in the story? Yo, John, why'd you put this in here? How's this conversation about nourishment and harvest really what he talks about, nourishment and harvest. And it's really um, not much different thematically from a theme standpoint. Not much different than the conversation he's been having with the woman. It's just from a different perspective, you might say. Jesus just revealed that he is the Messiah that everyone's been waiting for when his disciples return. And they find him doing what? Talking alone with this woman who obviously has a bad reputation. They are shocked. Shocked to see Jesus interacting with her. And the crazy thing is they don't ask the questions that everybody's thinking. How about that? I find that interesting that John chose to put that part in here. Hey, we were all kind of wondering, like, you know, Jesus, why are you talking to that woman? What are you looking for? Like, what are you seeking? I mean, what are you seeking from this woman? That's the context. So they all thought it. They all thought. Jesus is talking to a prostitute. I wonder what he's trying to get from her. That's the way the thought goes in their head. Very natural human instinct to think that way, right? Heaven forbid if you would ever put yourself in a place that would appear as though maybe you could possibly be sinning. Notice how the religious language and the religious protection kind of makes its way in there for us, right? It already started happening with the disciples. They're shocked. They don't ask the question everybody's thinking. And in that awkward silence, I mean, the way I envision it, the disciples come around the corner, like I said, they're farting, seeing who can spit further or whatever. They got food because they went to get food. They come around the corner, they're being loud, they're being kind of crazy. Suddenly they see Jesus sitting there with this woman, and it gets quiet. Really awkwardly quiet. And all you can hear is their footsteps as they walk up the gravel. And this woman now is surrounded by a whole bunch of men. It's an awkward moment. So, she gets the heck out of there. <laughs> a text even says she leaves the bucket. Leaves the bucket and takes off. Heads back to town. She's telling the town, you've got to come meet this guy. Come meet this guy who told me everything about myself. And as the town is headed out to see Jesus, the disciples then start this conversation with Jesus. They start urging him to get something to eat, right? You know, Jesus, you've been working hard. You probably should eat something. You probably need some nourishment. And Jesus is like, no, man, I'm already satisfied. I already found my nourishment by doing the work that my Father has sent me to do. And Jesus is then metaphorically telling his disciples that he's been busy working hard to sow the seeds of the gospel into this woman's life. That the field of her heart is ready for the harvest. And they're about to experience what it's like to reap the benefits of his labor. 
Oftentimes when people comment on this text, and I've done it too, you take it from the perspective of being an evangelist. You want to be like Jesus, raw, raw, right? The reality of this text is that the place that you and I are to sit in is either the place of the disciples at best, or really the place of the woman. That's where we are to sit in this story. Maybe the townspeople. The disciples are about to experience the, the reaping of the benefits of Jesus' labor as an evangelist in this woman's life. The tip-top point, the explosive moment, the crescendo of the text is what we're about to head into. The very end of the story. Because the reality is that the disciples are about to experience a massive spiritual harvest such as they probably had not experienced yet. Jesus' conversation with this woman was not about getting something from the woman as they thought. This conversation that he was having with this woman is all about giving her everything she ever desired and then actually witnessing her then turning around and sharing that same gift of her newfound faith with a whole bunch of people from the city. You can definitely take Jesus as the greatest evangelist ever and learn things from how he interacts with her. But I'll tell you, the place where I see myself in this text is this woman at the well. As she meets Jesus and encounters him and hears him for herself and then gets up and runs back to town and says, you got to come meet this guy who loved me enough to see all my sin. And he accepted me. The very end of the story is when the Samaritans believe in Jesus. Part of the problem in the American church when it comes to evangelism is that we have turned evangelism into a personal thing, not a communal thing. We've turned it into personal salvation. You need to receive Jesus as your personal Lord and Savior. And I'm not arguing that that's wrong. I believe that's right. Absolutely. But you can argue for something that's right to the extent that you leave out other things that are right too. And I think that part of what we've lost in our love for personal autonomy, which, by the way, is the same argument for abortion, in our love for personal autonomy is we have lost a commitment to community and a surrendering to leadership that is valid and important. I say that as an aside, just to move back into the text. The Samaritans, and they come to believe in Jesus. When I imagine the end of the scene here and what takes place, I see a woman who left the city in the heat of the day as a broken and shame-filled, um, guilty, a fearful prostitute who's trying to avoid others. As she returns back to that same city in the cool of the evening as a transformed woman, she tasted the living water of the person and the work of Jesus. The fascinating part about the end of this story See, even though many people believed in Jesus from that town because of her testimony, come see the man who told me 
everything about myself and still love me in the midst of it and never ask me for anything. Those same people who came to believe in Jesus because of her story, they come to a real personal place of faith in Christ once they hear Jesus speak directly to them. I'm fond of saying, you don't need to hear from me, you need to hear from Jesus. Part of that's because I love the sound of my own voice. <sighs> if I'm honest. The people from Samaria could not be saved simply by hearing the woman's testimony. Don't hear me wrong. The woman's testimony is not going to save them. They could not ride her coattails of her salvation story. The woman's salvation story, her testimony, all that it served as, all your story, if you know Jesus, what it serves as, it's like an appetizer before the real meal. It, it, it starts to create a hunger or an appetite or a desire or a thirst for hearing or consuming the real thing that will actually nourish you eternally, and that's Jesus. Once they had heard Jesus personally for themselves, they couldn't help but to believe in Him as the Messiah, the Redeemer, the Restorer, the Savior of the world. That's the story. In conclusion, I, I want to ask this question. Where do you see yourself in the story? Where do you see yourself in the story? And what is Jesus specifically speaking to you right now? I could try to give you four or five go-do points. But I think what I'm supposed to do this morning is just simply ask you, where do you see yourself in this story? And what is Jesus speaking to you right now? And would you willingly submit and surrender <clears throat> To what he's saying to you. As I immersed myself in this story again um, last week, I, I spent some time thinking about my own soul, thinking about this church family. I remembered many sweet memories um, of experiencing harvest. Uh, with many of you, uh, many of you, as you took your first steps, even um, as newborn babies in Christ. And I, I pray that when I say newborn babies, you know there's nothing detrimental about that, that comment. Like many of you here in this room that call this church your, your home, you come from different backgrounds, and you showed up here at the well looking for a church that you could find some shelter that you could call a family, where the gospel would be preached, where there would be a, a mission that seemed true and real and authentic where it didn't seem like it was a mission for smoke and lights and mirrors, and, um, or it felt like, yeah, like, this feels real, like we're really trying to do something, something that doesn't feel maybe spit, shined, and polished, much like others. And Not that we don't want to do things with excellence, but many of you, when you showed up here, these were the things you were looking for, and by God's grace, here you are. And I can't tell you how many times over the course of 10 years, um, and I would tell you, too, that when we first started, I begged the Lord, I begged him for 10 years, keep me here for 10 years, keep me here for 10 years. And now I wonder, <laughs> how much longer are you going to keep me here? I wonder, <laughs> maybe it's 10 more. 
maybe it's the rest of my life. I don't know if I could ever pastor another church anywhere else. I don't know. can't tell you how many times I've wept massive tears of joy as I've witnessed the Lord breaking through into people's hearts, breaking past the crust, and the hardness, and the sin, and the brokenness. I remember the times where I've also wept tears, gut-wrenching agony, right, as some people have disappeared or left altogether. That happens too. And amidst those tears of joy and anguish that I've experienced, I've continuously been in awe of how the Lord has drawn this little church family <laughs> full of vagabonds and outcasts and lonely people and rebellious folks, people who've been ostracized and left on the sidelines and marginalized. That's what Jesus has done here. Shocks me every time. So many times I thought, Lord, you're going to shut this thing down one of these days, right? Like, There's no way this can last, right? I remember times when we were down to $500 in the bank and three families were leaving. It's like, I need you. <laughs> you know? Uh, we moved seven times in the first six years. One house to the next. Abandoned motorcycle shop that was grungy and filthy. And we threw rock shows and got the cops called on us. <laughs> on Sunday mornings, we get the cops called on us because our worship was too loud. It's just, there's memories. There's so many memories for me as a shepherd. I uh, took my youngest daughter to a graduation yesterday, and we, uh, we uh, pulled in at the wrong house out in the country about, seemed like 10 miles outside of uh, DeWeese or so. Pulled in the wrong house, and um, there's nobody home, but there was uh, five or six sheep in a pen. And so while we were waiting to figure out whether we were at the right house or not, I walked over by these five or six sheep, and those five or six sheep ran off from the barn, and out from the barn ran about 30 or 40 more, <laughs> all bad, cute little, cute little babies, and me and Jesus had a moment there. I identify fully with the woman at the well. Probably more than you'll ever know. <laughs> I know what it's like to be rejected. I'm to be cast aside because of my sin and brokenness. <sighs> Part of one of my deepest fears is if you get close enough to me, you'll see it. And you'll run. The reality is this, over 10 years of pastoring, is that nearly every person who has come through here and then left has typically left with a list of criticism about me. And some of that, some of that's because they witnessed some sin. <laughs> Mostly they've just witnessed the tip of the iceberg, to be honest with you. I find that I don't, I don't meet the mark of a standard of a pastor that the scripture lays out more often than I could more often than I could, could unpack for you. So I identify fully with this woman at the well. That's just my own personal journey. I don't know how you identify with her. You're not in my shoes. I, I, you know, you're not standing where I stand. I get it. 
I'm just hoping that if I can be honest with you, maybe you're be honest with Jesus. I'm certain that most of you know what it's like to struggle with sin. I'm certain that most of you know what it's like to feel rejected or to be rejected or to be alone or to feel filthy or to feel unlovable or to feel ashamed of yourself because of your failures. This is where I say praise God for the story of the woman at the well. (laughs) Because in this story, we meet Jesus. He sees us in our darkness. sees us in our filth. sees us in our shame-filled moments. And He loves us completely. He doesn't just see us. He pursues us. He offers Himself to us. He doesn't just offer Himself to be with us. He offers Himself to satisfy every need that we will ever have if we would listen to Him and believe in Him, trust in Him, and submit to Him. I still think it's absolutely pure insanity to ever plant a church called The Well and then try to actually have it look like that story. I think it's pure insanity to plant a church that has a mission statement that says we're going to live within a yard of hell. That seems really silly. But despite the insanity the craziness of that journey over the last 10 years, I'd have to say again, praise God. Praise God. Praise God for His work in planting this church where people like you and me um, can come and get filled up with the living water, the crucified, risen, and returning Savior. Amen? Would you stand with me? Let's pray. Father, thank You so much for the way that you loved the woman at the well. Pray, Father, that you would come and meet us where we are at this morning, each of us. Speak to us. Give us your spirit. Help us to wrestle with the things that you're saying to us. Trust you to do that in Jesus' name. Amen. You're listening to an audio message from The Well, a gospel-centered church family in Hastings, Nebraska that exists to grow disciples and glorify God. For more information, please visit www.thewellhastings.com.